So welcome to our series of EPIPs today. Um, today we have with us Professor Mark Davenport. Uh, Professor Mark Davenport is a consultant neonatal and pediatric surgeon at King's College Hospital. He is the past president of the British Association of Pediatric Surgeons and at King's College Hospital has a special interest in liver surgery and thoracic surgery. Um, so welcome today to our series of podcasts. Um, so we're going to start off today talking about <coughs> biliary atresia. And so this is a topic that does come up in our exams. Um, a lot of trainees haven't had the opportunity to see these patients or interact with them. And so I thought we could start with something quite simple and actually look at the first thing, which would be is, can you just tell us a little bit about what biliary atresia is, just as a simple description? Okay. Uh, so biliary atresia is, is very much a unique to the neonatal period. You really don't get uh, that, this kind of pathology anywhere else in your life. And uh, it presents uh, essentially as, as jaundice within the first few weeks of life. Uh, and the jaundice itself is uh, what we would call conjugated jaundice. So it's typically uh, obstructive jaundice, high level of conjugated bilirubin. And as a consequence of that, you get very pale stools. Uh, because the, uh, the bilirubin, the type of bilirubin is water soluble, you get overspilling into the, into the urine. So the urine looks dark. So these kids turn up. Typically with, uh, uh, with jaundice, pale stools, dark urine in the first few weeks of life. Okay. Um, so if we take it a little bit before that, then so antenatally, are there any uh, features that would suspect, would raise one's suspicion that this baby might have biliary atresia? So 95% of the, uh, of babies with biliary atresia, there's absolutely no signs or symptoms that might present in the antenatal period. There's one special case. Uh, and that's something we would call cystic biliary atresia. So normally biliary atresia itself is an obliterative process. Uh, but in this particular uh, pathological variant, you get uh, cyst formation within an otherwise obliterated biliary tree. And it's that cyst which you can actually pick up on the maternal ultrasound. So these uh, children, of which only perhaps about half might have a cyst big enough to be picked up on the antenatal ultrasound, um, will turn up on the usual sort of screening ultrasound that they do for fetal anomalies around about the 20th week. Uh, so they find this cyst. Now, nothing really happens to it. Uh, it stays the same kind of size, and there's nothing really to do uh, uh, for them during the pregnancy. But after their birth, uh, it certainly needs investigation. Now, the typical differential, of course, with that kind of problem is a, a true cholidocal malformation. And sometimes it takes a laparotomy to sort out which is which. Um, but those are the only real ones that have antenatal features. Okay. <clears throat> so if these babies are then born and they present, as you say, with that conjugated hyperbilirubinemia, at that stage, what are the main differentials that run into your mind? So they will present clearly uh, to other people other than a professor of paediatric surgery. Um, and that's where the sort of main stumbling block uh, goes. So it's it's not really a difficult diagnosis to make for me, but it is uh, like chasing a needle in a haystack for the people out there where there are lots and lots of cases of jaundiced babies of which only a tiny proportion actually turn out to have biliary atresia. So we know the incidence of biliary atresia is about 1 in 17,000 in the UK. Uh, we know that about one in 2,000 will have conjugated jaundice. 
So it's not even the commonest cause of conjugated jaundice in the neonatal period. Um, but the first uh, hurdle to overcome, if you like, is to get uh, the people like health visitors, uh, midwives, uh, junior pediatricians, general practitioners to recognise that this baby with jaundice is somehow different. And the key way of doing that is to ask them about the stools. So the stools in those babies will be white. In all the other forms of uh, non-conjugated jaundice, stools have a normal colour. Uh, so it's very much a key sign that we would ask for or ask others to ask for. Uh, and then if that's the case, they will then need a, uh, a blood test. And the blood test itself, not just a total bilirubin, but a split bilirubin. And our babies with bilirubin will have a, a raised conjugated fraction uh, in their bilirubin. Again, unlike uh, the normal physiological jaundice, if I can use that term. Okay. <clears throat> so in addition to the blood test that you've just alluded to, um, apart from that, are there any other imaging studies that you would then recommend either performing at the local hospital or that you would do at your tertiary centre? So all of these uh, babies will then, if they've been demonstrably got a significant conjugated hyperbilirubinemia jaundice, uh, then they will all need investigations because potentially uh, they've got a pathology. Uh, so again, that differentiates them from babies that uh, have got physiological jaundice, breast milk jaundice, perhaps when it would all settle spontaneously. So the, the panel um, or the investigation protocol for these kind of babies is split largely down medical lines versus surgical lines. So on the medical side, there is a whole list of medical diseases uh, such as alpha uh, alpha one antitrypsin deficiency, such as allergial syndrome, such as cystic fibrosis, uh, such as a history of parental nutrition, um, where they will also have conjugated hyperbilirubinemia, uh, and those things need to be excluded before you're really considering a genuine diagnosis or a surgical diagnosis for the jaundice. On the surgical front, we've also got a smaller list of diseases surgical diseases, which could also explain the conjugated jaundice. 80% um, will be bilirubin, but you can have an obstructed cholelocal malformation. You can have what's called inspissated bile syndrome, where the bile itself becomes sticky, uh, obstructs the bilirubin, and they've got a, a, a jaundice picture. Uh, there's also a condition called spontaneous perforation of the bile duct, and they will present with conjugated jaundice and pale stools as well. Um, now, from our perspective, the key diagnostic uh, test or tool would be an ultrasound. And that can be done in the district general hospitals. And what they're looking for are diagnoses other than biliary atresia. Uh, as I say, the, the uh, cholelocal malformation should be picked up on an ultrasound. The inspissated bile syndrome should be picked up on an ultrasound. The uh, perforated bile duct should be picked up on an ultrasound. Biliary atresia, the ultrasound features, are fairly subtle because uh, although the disease itself is characterised by obliteration of the biliary tree, unlike most obliterative biliary pathology, you don't get any intrahepatic bile duct dilatation. So if you haven't got that, then there's nothing really for the ultrasound to see. So the most uh, of our ultrasound features are fairly subtle, including atrophy of the gallbladder irregular uh, and irregular shape or characteristics of the wall of the gallbladder um, rather than any real positive sign based on the ultrasound. So it's 
It's mainly a diagnostic tool of exclusion rather than positively saying, oh, this is biliary intrusion. Okay, and is there any role for <clears throat> performing an MRI scan? Uh, so the only real uh, value of an MR scan is if you've documented the presence of a cyst. So if, like the previous uh, example we gave, you've got an antenatally detected subhepatic cyst. Now that could be a cystic atresia, that could be an obstructed cystic cholelocal malformation, could also be a duplication cyst. Those, uh, having had the diagnosis confirmed, if you like, on a postnatal ultrasound, uh, they probably would benefit from having an MR scan. But thus far, MR has no role uh, in diagnosis of biliary atresia. Uh, MR really is much more suitable to, to things that you can see, dilated duct cysts, but not it will not differentiate whether a duct is obliterated or not. Okay, so <clears throat> let's assume that this baby has got a diagnosis or suspicion of biliary atresia based at the local hospital. And they have done the blood test, they've done the ultrasound scan, they are very worried, and you accept this baby into your tertiary centre. So what would you do next with this patient? So just to uh, give you a little bit of background about how we do things in the UK. So the UK, we have uh, centralised our practice. So in 1999, uh, all babies with suspected biliary atresia were to be managed, at least in England and Wales, in uh, one of three units. Uh, Leeds in the north, Birmingham in the Midlands, and Kings down here in London. And all the other units, that includes Great Ormond Street, Alder Hay Children's Hospital, uh, Sheffield Children's Hospital, had to refer to other places. So th now that that's a good thing. Demonstrably shown it's a good thing, but it also removes the head scratching, the diagnostic uh, challenges for the paediatricians in those centres from saying, well, what is the cause of this baby with conjugated jaundice? They just refer the babies. Uh, so we tend to, uh, they, they tend to come uh, within a week of it being picked up uh, and we go through a diagnostic process in the tertiary centre. So one of the benefits of that is that reduces the time to treatment. Uh, and that's one of the, the real problems that you get in places like the USA where everyone has an opinion on what the diagnostic uh, reason for this baby's jaundice is, and it stretches out the timeline. So uh, with that, they turn up at our, our, our centre. Now, each of the, our units haven't got a, a rigid standardised protocol, apart from exclusion of all the other medical things. Uh, so at King's, we rely on a percutaneous liver biopsy to come to a conclusion as to whether we genuinely think this baby's got biliary atresia or not. Uh, and with that, we can then go forward to a laparotomy. Uh, hopefully in the secure knowledge that they've made a, a correct decision. Other well, units are using the liver biopsy less and less because it's obviously it's a, an invasive procedure, but we still believe and have got uh, more specific diagnoses coming to laparotomy. So I think we think there's still value in it. Okay. And is there any role for, or has there been any research looking at biochemical markers that can, again, point you towards that diagnosis? Yeah, so sadly, there's been a lot of uh, uh, pounds, dollars, francs wasted on trying to find a specific biomarker for atresia. Uh, but in truth, nothing has stood up. Um, most of these babies have got significantly raised gamma GT levels. But you can still get a, a normal gamma GT and still be biliary atresia. 
So aside from the Gamma GT, there's nothing really that will aid you in your diagnostic quest. Okay, so let's move on a little bit more towards the management. So you alluded to going towards a laparotomy, but are there any? Is there any role for medical management exclusively for biliary atresia? Uh, there's no role at all. Move on. Okay, so when we get to the the surgical management, can you tell us how you perform the laparotomy, what you okay. look for, and um, how you perform a cholangiogram if you do? Okay, so the uh, before I get to uh, too much into the details of the surgery itself. One diagnostic test I should perhaps mention, uh, although it's not it's not commonly available, and that's an ERCP. So it is actually technically possible to do an ERCP in a three to four kilo baby, but you've got to get the right scope. Um, and given the fact there's only one such scope in the UK, we've got it, and we're not letting other people use it. ERCP in the UK is only really available at Kings. There are some European centres, notably Hanover in Germany that use ERCP instead of a liver biopsy. Um, so on every baby suspicious for biliary they will get an ERCP. We tend to reserve our ERCP for those where the biopsy is not actually conclusive. So 10-15% of our biopsied babies, the pathologist will still have a question mark over the diagnosis. Now, it may be because these babies have just got to them too young, because the histology is actually dependent on the liver, not the biopsy. Um, so they can't, all they can see is histological features of large duct obstruction, not the actual diagnosis, which is the extrapatic military. So having said that, ERCP, selective use only, uh, at this, in, uh, in our center. Uh, surgery. So the, the surgery, uh, itself has got two aims. One is to confirm the diagnosis. Um, so what, uh, we do, uh, is, a, is a small, centimetre, two centimetre, right up a quadrant incision uh, to look at the gallbladder and you can make a diagnosis. So in, in most of these babies with blue atresia, there will not be any form of bile visible or aspiratable from their gallbladders. And you know that's diagnostic of blue atresia. The bile has not got to the level of the gallbladder. There's one type, it's called a type one, where there might be bile in the actual gallbladder itself, and their atretic um, level is in the common bile duct. But again, that will be sorted out because you'll be doing a cholangiogram. So the cholangiogram, uh, if you can put a, a catheter within a gallbladder, uh, you can do a cholangiogram, and that will sort out whether you've got bilirubin or not. Um, having established the diagnosis, we then enlarge the incision uh, to actually deliver the liver so the liver comes all the way onto the anterior abdominal wall and that exposes the porta heptis, which is the, uh, the key part of the dissection process. And uh, what you're trying to do, essentially, is separate out the solid uh, extrapatic biliary tree from the underlying vascular structures, that is the hepatic arteries, um, and the bifurcation of the portal vein. Uh, and once you've separated all of those uh, elements then you can transect at the level of the porta hepatis, taking away, excising all the, the remnants. So you're left with a raw area within the porta hepatis. And to that raw area, uh, we will raise a, a, a roux loop and do a, what's called a porto enterostomy. Uh, and the idea of that is that, because typically you cannot see any 
tubular structure left in the port aptus. That's the commonest situation. They would be called type 3 biliary atresias. There's nothing that's visible on the port aptus. What you're relying on, uh, of course, is uh, you've transected microscopic biliary ductules. And you're hoping, and it's true in the majority of babies, that these microscopic biliary ductules retain some kind of communication with the intrahepatic bile ducts. And if you expose enough of them, or if the surface area of these ductules is, is great enough, then bile will flow, and all being well, your jaundice levels will subside, and hopefully you will abbreviate the fibrotic process that you will inevitably get in the liver itself. So the surgery itself, and the surgery itself is about two to three hours long, relatively straightforward. These are usually good quality babies. Um, we've got a, a separate stratagem, if you like, if the babies are too old. Uh, but most of the 95% of babies born with bilirubin in the UK will undergo a portoentrostomy at Kasai procedure. Thank you. Thank you so much for explaining that. Um, so in the last few conferences that um, I have attended, I have seen sort of increasing papers uh, coming out describing the role of minimally invasive surgery in biliatresia. Uh, what are your views on that? I think you should go to other conferences. Okay, fantastic. So I'll go into I'm going to it in more detail because you're bound to put some kind of references. Um, so the uh, minimally invasive Kasai operations, laparoscopic Kasai operations, first done in about 2002 uh, in Brazil. And uh, several people uh, took it up as, a, as an option. So most notably some uh, people in the States, uh, Benno Ure um, and uh, Klaus Peterson in Hanover in Germany. Um, and they all started to do uh, handfuls of cases and they all gave it up. And there was a moratorium in 2009 in IPEG saying this really is not the, the uh, pathology for us to be doing minimally invasive surgery. It certainly does not improve any kind of dissection certainly doesn't improve the actual reconstruction that you have to do, and we cannot see any real advantage. Now, having said that, um, over the last, uh, we'll say, five years, uh, in the Far East, led by uh, a guy called uh, Yamataka in Tokyo, uh, he has been, he's been the only real light uh, and is being consistent in doing laparoscopic casides. Uh, and he claims, he claims and has published very decent results uh, doing lapcasides uh, of over 60% uh, jaundice clearance. It's not really been taken up by any other surgeon in Japan, but uh, the Chinese have got interested, and China has got the biggest experience nowadays of bilirubin. So there are uh, one or two centres, most notably Longli uh, in Beijing, uh, who have started to do comparison comparison studies in uh, uh, between his open uh, casais and his lap casais. But the obvious difference is that their results are so much inferior. Now, that's true for their open casais uh, as well as their lap casais as well. They're nowhere near the Japanese outcome. And that's interesting in itself because one would assume that they've got the same pathology, but they in some uh, way, and clearly technically that there's no real difference in terms of the technical skills needed to do a, a lapkasai on either side of the uh, Sea of Japan. 
but they they certainly have got nothing like the jaundice clearance, and they're reporting something like forty uh, percent jaundice clearance in both a lap and open. So, uh, to our uh, point of view, we 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 really can't see any advantage for for lap size, um, and so haven't gone down that route. Uh, our main argument. Uh, would be you've really got to get the open size sorted out before you embark upon some other new touring. Okay, fantastic. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what complications you might expect after a Kasai procedure? Okay. Uh, first and foremost, it doesn't work. Um, so, uh, as I mentioned, jaundice clearance, that's the number one measure of outcome that you should always try and extract out of anyone that says they do Kasai operations. What is your jaundice clearance rate? Um, and we, and you've got to define that. So we define it uh, as achieving a normal level of bilirubin, uh, which in everywhere apart from the States is defined as less than 20 micromoles per litre. Uh, theirs is about less than 1.5 milligrams per deciliter. So different set of units. Um, and with that, in the UK, our national clearance of jewelers is now 66% in the last five years. Um, and that's, that's, is very comparable with the Japanese reported outcomes, which are the best in the world. Uh, if you go to places like, uh, Europe, European centers or centers in the States, uh, they will be reporting something of the order of 50, 55 in the best centers. So God alone knows what happens in the worst centers. And that's one of our arguments for centralization that you, one of the problems with this disease is its, is its rarity. So if you as a surgeon are doing one or two a year, never really going to get good at it. So we would suggest, um, if you've got an interest in it, you should be at least doing five a year. That's probably very much an underestimate as well. And with that, you can hopefully take out the surgical experience factor in getting decent results. So that's one thing. It doesn't work. Uh, you can have all the other problems uh, associated with chronic liver disease. So ascites. Now, um, we mentioned a little bit in passing uh, how important it is to get these babies to surgery. Uh, the idea of that is that this is an inexorable pathological process. So uh, if you don't relieve obstruction in these babies, uh, your liver cells will start to secrete the various factors that will stimulate liver fibrosis, which will end up with cirrhosis and all the problems that that will entail. And that process starts at around the time of birth. So they don't have it at the time of birth. Um, and it continues. Uh, and typically uh, you can get clinical cirrhosis evident in babies that come to surgery from about 80 to 100 days old. Beyond 100 days old, they're virtually all cirrhotic. Now, you can still get some decent outcomes just using a Kasai quarterosterostomy, but certainly the outcomes aren't as good as operating on babies who uh, are less than that kind of age. Okay. Um, I believe there has been a trial looking at the use of steroids. Um, so do they actually improve bowel drainage following surgery? Okay, so you're clearly asking the right person for this, given that ours was the first trial that randomized steroids. And uh, we did it in conjunction with Leeds. Um, we did, admittedly in hindsight, use a low dose of steroids. We never used steroids before. So we had to persuade our pediatric colleagues to allow us to use them because it's a dangerous drug. 
Uh, but they did. And uh, uh, we, what we showed was it didn't tend to have any significant medium-term effects or indeed changes significantly on clearance of Jordans. But what it did have was significant changes in the biochemistry. So the steroid arm, if you like, uh, had lower levels of bilirubin at three months. Now, we looked at that as not as a negative thing. We thought, thought that's a positive sign. If only we can perhaps do something to uh, increase the, the level of steroids. So we did. We doubled the dose. We gave it for a longer period of time. And then reported our, our results with a very big uh, group of high-dose steroids versus our placebos and our controls. And in that particular uh, uh, trial, it was a, an open-label trial, uh, we did show a significant difference in Jordan's clearance of the order of 15%. Uh, and that also had knock-on effects on lower AST levels. Uh, and also, if we followed them sufficiently long enough, on the reduced need for transplant. Now, the Americans got their act together to do a, a multi-center uh, trial involving 18 different centers throughout North America. They also used a high-dose regime, but they uh, they factored, they, uh, uh, they, they did, uh, uh, or they controlled it, if you like, for the wrong figure. They, uh, they looked for a, a difference of effect of 25% between steroid and placebo. Perhaps not surprisingly, didn't manage to show it. So they came to an opposite conclusion. They 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 said, or, uh, if you looked at their figures, that they didn't have a statistical advantage in the steroid arm. When you actually dissect out their figures, however, uh, there was a consistent advantage in the steroid group of the order of fifteen percent, which was the same thing that we were showing, but because we had larger numbers, uh, ours was statistically significant. So uh, the, the, the American, North American steroid trial, it's called the START trial, tended to stop steroid use, at least in North America. Although I note that the actual surgeons involved have tended to, to come back onto the steroid pathway. So they're giving it in, in selected cases. Um, now, most of the rest of the world has adopted steroids as a standard. So in the big European centres, certainly in Japan, certainly in China, they're all believers in steroids as an effective adjuvant therapy. Excellent. Um, so thank you. I've just got one more question, which was, you alluded again about sub-specialisation. Um, so do you feel in the UK it has improved outcomes? Okay. So we've uh, again published on this. So I'll give you the history of, of biliary atresia in the UK. So in the 1980s, Everyone and his dog was doing the Kasai operation. Um, but there was a survey of outcome uh, in the early part of the 1980s where um, they looked at all babies born with bariatrics. I think it was a two-year period. Uh, and then they uh, they identified the clinics of jaundice and the need, uh, well, death or the need for transplant. Uh, and they divided... Uh, the centres, if you like, on whether they were doing more than five a year. Uh, there was only one that was doing more than five a year, that was kids. And then they lumped the rest of them uh, into a sort of uh, low-frequency arm. And there was a statistically significant uh, improvement in the in the high-volume centre, kids. Now, I was in the middle of the 1980s. Everyone thought, well, okay, perhaps it'll be different in a few years when we've had a bit more experience. So nothing was done. Now, in the 1990s, 
a similar survey was uh, was performed. Again, all the babies born in the UK and Ireland uh, were looked at over a two-year period. Uh, and again, the same uh, classification for centre was used. So uh, centres treated more than five years. Now, by this time, Birmingham had got its act together. Uh, so there was now two centres, Birmingham and King's. And again, they did the same analysis. And it showed exactly the same thing. If you had a, if you had your Kasai at a centre not of Birmingham and King's, you had a statistically significant worse outcome. Increased risk of death, uh, increased need for transplant. Uh, so this was in the days when the media were very interested in medical outcomes. This was in the days of uh, the cardiac surgical scandal in Bristol. Um, and this biliary outcome thing was going to be next. Uh, and they, it was going to be splashed all over the pages of the national newspapers. It did hit private eye. They, they, uh, they, they ran with it. And the government were very quick and said they didn't want another Bristol. Uh, so therefore they ordered, Department of Health ordered all the units in England and Wales, because this only affected England and Wales. They could only order those in England and Wales to, to refer on to uh, the two centres plus Leeds. And uh, that started the centralisation process in 1999. So there was two, uh, as it were, uh, uncentralised outcome studies, 90s uh, and, and the 1980s. Um, and we did the next one, post-centralisation, published it in about 2003 uh, in The Lancet. And that showed that the results that you've seen previously only in Kings and Birmingham could be extended to all of the babies. So I think the uh, percentage of St. George's was about 55%. That uh, uh, could be uh, rolled out, if you like, to each and every baby that had come through uh, the Kings, Birmingham and Leeds uh, centres. Um, so that's, that's a marker, it's the first marker of centralisation as evidence. And it's been very influential in that other countries have taken up that kind of policy. So our centralisation message has been taken up in Holland, uh, in uh, Finland, in uh, Sweden, in Norway, and all of them have now centralised their bilirubinary practice. Uh, so we think that's been a good thing. Uh, we then, we did the ten year uh, figures in the Journal of Pediatric Surgery, uh, and we're just about to do the twenty year figures uh, for this year as well. Fantastic. Thank you very, very much um, for your time. And we look forward to having you back on the series for some more discussion. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Patrick. Thank you very much, Patrick. Thank you very much, Patrick. Thank you very much, Patrick.